1: today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick.
2: Paul, when he would write to Timothy and then separately to Titus, he would call each of them, my son in the faith. Peter was a mentor to John Mark. Paul was a mentor to Timothy and Titus. Mentoring is a good thing. Discipling people is a good thing. It's a biblical thing. We see it modeled in the Bible. But what happens when someone that you admire dies or leaves you or worse, fails you? Will your faith still stand?
1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through judges. It's a sad thing when a pastor, parent, or mentor dies. It's even more sad if they fall into sin. But the saddest thing of all is when those who looked up to them lose their faith in God as a result. This is what happened to the Israelites every time one of their judges would die as we'll hear in today's message with Pastor Gary. The people of God were fine as long as their judge was alive, but as soon as they died, sin would creep back into the culture. Is your faith built on those you look up to? Instead, build its foundation on Christ, the solid rock. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary for part two of today's message titled "Jesus Only."
2: Probably the most familiar of the Baals is Baal Zebub. Baal, by the way, just means Lord, small l, and Baal Zebub translates "Lord of the Flies." They believed that there was a God who would protect the harvest by chasing away flies. And this particular deity, Beelzebub, becomes the principal chief god of the Canaanites, so much so that we see a reference to Beelzebub in the New Testament, don't we? It's spelled a little bit differently in the Greek transliteration. It's B-E-E-L instead of B-A-A-L. But Beelzebub is what the Pharisees called Jesus. Because when Jesus was driving out demons, the Pharisees who did not want to attribute Jesus' power to divinity, to God, they attribute then his power to demons. And so the Pharisees said about Jesus that you're just simply driving out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And that's when Jesus said, whoa, that doesn't even make sense. A kingdom divided itself cannot stand. Why would Satan drive out Satan? If you think that I'm performing in the power of Beelzebub, why in the world would I be driving out demons? And so... They use that term, and the New Testament is a derogatory term to accuse Jesus of operating in demonic powers. Of course, we know that isn't true, but it's a carryover of this God, Beelzebub, from the Old Testament. But Baal and Asherah were the principal gods of the Canaanites, and they were gods of fertility and agriculture. The gods of fertility and agriculture. And it's important for you to know how these gods were worshipped, because it says a lot about the spiritual decline of the people of Israel. Here's how they would be principally worshipped. Through sexual immorality, through ritual prostitution, through self-mutilation and human sacrifice. That's what the Israelites were doing. They were giving in to the worship of these false gods because they had not driven out the ungodly influence of the land and now it is creeping into their own hearts and they are engaging in sexual immorality, ritualistic prostitution, human sacrifice, and self-mutilation. No wonder then we read there in chapter 3, verse 8, the anger of the Lord burned against them. Because this is what they're doing. The anger of the Lord burned against them. And so, God sold them into the hands of Kushan Rishathem, king of Aram Naharem. Aram Naharim is basically the northern part of ancient Mesopotamia. If you looked at a map today, it would be the northeastern part of Syria. Uh, Aram often a reference to Syria. And God will use the king of Syria to come and to spank his kids. Look, God disciplines those whom he loves. He is not going to be content to allow his own people to just give into and give way to All this kind of sin and idolatry. He's going to rescue them. And how does God often rescue us? By waking us up. By sometimes allowing hardship that comes into our lives to stir our hearts. God doesn't delight in seeing us suffer. But what does it take for us to get to the place of brokenness and repentance and contrition before him? And what God used for his people was another foreign king. Come, you attack, and my people then will turn to me. And that's exactly what they would do. And we know this to be true with human nature. We get ourselves in a mess. We cry out to God. And that's often how it works, and God is gracious to deliver us, as he did with them. And so here comes the king of Aram, and for eight years the people are subject to him. But then God raises up Athniel as a warrior, as this guy who's going to come and lead the people of Israel, and they fight against, and God gives the king of Aram into the hands of Athniel and the people of Israel. And as a result, they experience... 40 years of peace. Because it tells us in verse 10 that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Othniel, which, by the way, we see throughout the Old Testament from time to time. It's different from the New Testament pouring out of God's Spirit upon all flesh who believe in Jesus. That's Acts chapter 2. The Spirit was only poured out on assignment on particular people that God chose. Othniel was one of them. And he gets the spirit of the Lord to empower him and equip him to do the work that God's called him to do here. And Othniel rises up and becomes this judge of Israel as God appoints him, as God raises him up. And as a result of his leadership and of the victory over the people of Aram, they experience peace for 40 years, verse 11. By the way, five times the amount of years of peace as the years of oppression. Now, Othniel dies. That's what we read at the end of verse 11, that he died. And so keep reading verse 12. Once again, here's the pattern. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, that's Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Moab, by the way, would be on a map in modern Jordan today, just on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Verse 15, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer. Here's the second judge of Israel, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the He's of the tribe of Benjamin. So we're introduced here now to the second judge of Israel. His name is Ehud. His name in Hebrew translates united or union. And those of you familiar with some recent history of Israel will remember that two of their recent prime ministers were named Ehud. Ehud Barak in the late 90s, and Ehud Omert, who served as prime minister in the early 2000s. And Ehud in Hebrew, often if you hear somebody on the streets of Israel being called Udi, Udi is a nickname for Ehud. And this is the second judge of Israel. And the Bible tells us there in verse 15, And pay particular attention to this. It's not just a passing bit of information. It's an important part to the story that Ehud is a left-handed man. He is a left-handed man. Let's read on here. And so, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite, the Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Here's how it would work in the ancient days. If you became a subject of another foreign empire then you had to, for the privilege of keeping your life, continue to pay tribute or taxation to the king that has just overtaken you. So now they have to pay their tribute. They have to pay their dues, if you will, to Eglon, king of Moab. And so it says that the Israelites sent Ehud to Eglon with a tribute. In verse 16, Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. You know this is not going to be good, right? For somebody. And verse 17 says that he presented the tribute to Eglon king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Now that's also a part of this story, so you need to know that. Now by the way, this is cruel. Some mom was very cruel, but Eglon's name in Hebrew translates, are you ready? Little calf. Isn't that cruel? I mean, you name your kid Little Calf, he's going to grow up and be a very fat man. That's just cruel. And can you imagine the kids on the playground when he was little? And hey, Little Calf, you know, you know, and anyway, <laughs> anyway, very cruel. So here we are, verse 18. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. And at the idols near Gilgali, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, Quiet, and all his attendants left him. So now, King Eglon and Ehud are alone together in the king's chambers, in his palace. So verse 20, Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade which came out of his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Isn't this kind of gruesome? I hope you ate already. And then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. And after he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, this is funny. They said, well, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. He's on the pot. It's taken him a while. And they waited to the point of embarrassment. Isn't the Bible rich? I love this story. They waited. This is just so everyday stuff here. So they waited to the point of embarrassment. When are you coming out? You know, that kind of a thing. But when he did not open the door of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fall into the floor dead. And while they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down, notice, about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for, circle it, 80 years. Now, This is kind of a bizarre scene here, but God is going to raise up Ehud to be this uh, mighty warrior, to be a deliverer for the people of Israel. It tells us that he is a left-handed man. There are only three references in all of the Bible to left-handed people. Only three references to left-handed people. And every single time there's a reference to someone left-handed in the Bible, they are of the tribe of Benjamin. It appears that there is some genetic predisposition to left-handedness among the tribe of Benjamin. Ehud is a Benjamite, he is left-handed, and left-handed people, in especially hand-to-hand combat, have an advantage, because right-handed people are used to fighting right-handed people, but when you come onto a person who's left-handed, and they're wielding a sword in the left hand, you are more vulnerable to the element of surprise. Left-handed people also have an advantage in sports, by the way. If you play tennis, Now, I'm kind of one of these guys, I write with my right hand, I play all my sports left-handed. So when I play tennis left-handed and somebody lobs the ball to what they think is my backhand, they're actually serving it to my forehand, and so you have an advantage when you're left-handed. If you are a left-handed pitcher, you have an advantage. You can keep your eye on first base while you're pitching and making sure the runner is on first base. If you are a left-handed boxer, a southpaw boxer has a great advantage over an orthodox boxer. Not only because of your stance, but because the left-handed, a southpaw boxer, has a mean right hook that is often undetected. There's a lot of advantages to left-handed people when it comes to sports and physical things and hand-to-hand combat. So was the case here with Ehud. Typically in this day, most fighters would fight with their right hand. He was left-handed. Even if he was frisked when he came in to see the king only his left side would have been frisked because a right-handed fighter would have drawn the sword with a right hand from the left side. But he, being a left-handed fighter, has his sword underneath his clothing strapped to his right thigh so that he can cross his body to grab it in order to plunge it into the belly of the king. Now, as he does this, you know, this is a rather intense scene here. He plunges this sword with his left hand into the belly of the king. The Bible says that the point of the sword comes out the king's back and the handle of the sword gets absorbed into the belly fat of the king and Ehud basically says, you can keep it. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not going in after that. And so the king dies. Now, this Maybe just because I'm twisted, this is a funny story to me. Because then when the king is dead and Ehud locks the door behind him and he takes off, now he's got a head start to get the army of Israel together. The attendants to King Eglon are like, what is taking him so long? I mean, I know, you know, a lot of times he takes a long time in the pot, but this is a really long time and he's not coming out. And the Bible says they wait to the point of embarrassment. Are you okay in there? You know, and they don't get any response. So the Bible says they take a key and they go in and there they find their king in the bathroom dead, which is where that saying came from. When you go into a restroom after a person's been in there for a long time, who died in here? That's where that came from, right? No, I'm just, I'm kidding you. That's just pray for me. I have a twisted mind, I know. Who died in here? Anyway, you won't forget this story now, will you? You will not forget this story. But anyhow. So, here we go. Just pray for me. Just, when you think of it, just pray for me. Now, what happens here, as a result of this victory, verse 30, the Israelites experience peace for 80 years. And this, by the way, is the longest stretch of peace that the Israelites will experience under any one judge. 80 years. 80 years. Now, all of that is the information. Everything I've just shared with you is the information of the story. Here's the application. Do you notice here the pattern of what is happening in terms of the people's faith linked to the life of the leader? Because every single time, we've read three passages here. We started out talking about the death of Joshua and what happened to the next generation after he died. Then we talked about and what happened to the generation after he died, and Ehud and what happened after he dies, Every single time when the leader dies, the people forsake the Lord. Notice again some of these verses. In Judges chapter 2, verse 10 to 11, we read it earlier, talking about Joshua's generation. It says, after that whole generation of Joshua's had died, it talks about being gathered to their fathers, that's what it means. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So then they're oppressed, then they cry out to God, and then God raises up Othniel, and everything was good as long as Othniel lived. But then it tells us in Judges three eleven and 12, so the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Canaz, died. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then the Moabites come, and then they cry out to the Lord, and God raises up Ehud, and everything's good for as long as Ehud lives. But then a verse we didn't read is Judges 4.1. It says, after Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Do you see the pattern here? As long as the leader's doing well, the people are doing well. When the leader dies, the people, if you will, fall off the wagon. They go back into sin and idolatry. The Israelites honored God so long as their leader was alive. But as soon as Joshua dies, the next generation forsook the Lord. Then Othniel. As soon as Othniel dies, then the next generation forsook the Lord. Then Ehud. As soon as Ehud dies, then the next generation forsook the Lord. Which tells us something. That their faith was only as good as the leader's life. And when the leader died, so did their faith. So did their faith. And it's important for us to understand. Because... Many of us have mentors, spiritual mentors we look up to, people who have strongly influenced our life for the good, for the Lord, and done wonderful things to pour into our lives. And that's a great thing. I mean, mentoring is modeled in the Bible, for goodness sakes. Peter, in his epistle, talks about how John Mark was my son in the faith. Paul, when he would write to Timothy and then separately to Titus, he would call each of them my son in the faith. Peter was a mentor to John, Mark. Paul was a mentor to Timothy and Titus. Mentoring is a good thing. Discipling people is a good thing. It's a biblical thing. We see it modeled in the Bible. But what happens when someone that you admire dies or leaves you or worse, fails you? Will your faith still stand? Think about parents who invest into their children the good news about the Lord and pour into their hearts scripture and truth, trying to pass on truth to the next generation. And then that generation grows up having received all this wonderful information from mom and dad. But what happens when mom or dad die or leave or fail you? Will you still stand firm in the faith? a spiritual mentor, someone who has been greatly influential in your life, what happens when they die, or if they leave you, or if they fail you? Will you still stand strong in the faith? And here's a question that's a hard question that should be asked every now and again just to make sure that we as a church are healthy. What happens when I die? What happens if I were to leave? What happens, God forbid, if I were to fail you? Will you still stand strong in your faith? Will this church still stand strong in the faith? Or has it been built on a person? Every single one of us have to grapple with this. Because there's nothing wrong with admiring people and respecting people and receiving a lot of encouragement and discipleship and mentoring. But it's a whole other thing to do what the Israelites did. To put your faith on the backs of the leaders. So that when they rise, you rise. And when they fall, you fall. No, 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 no. No, it's not supposed to work that way. We have to get our eyes off of people. Because people may fail us. And people may disappoint us. And people will die. What then of our faith? Now apparently the church at Corinth was wrestling with this very same tendency, and so Paul would have to somewhat rebuke them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 11 to 13. This is what he said to them. He said, "My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this: One of you says I follow Paul; another says I follow Apollos; another I follow Cephas; still another I follow Christ." And then Paul asked some rhetorical questions. Here they are: Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? These are rhetorical questions. In other words, no. No. He's saying, is Christ divided? No. It's not your faith that rests on Jesus and Paul. He says, was Paul crucified for you? He says, no. It was Jesus who was crucified for you. Not Jesus and Paul. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He says, no, you were baptized in the name of Jesus. It's not Jesus and Paul. And you and I can insert whatever name we need to insert there in place of Paul's. It is not Jesus and. It is Jesus only. We cannot have our faith resting on the backs of spiritual leaders and mentors. Because as they rise, so will our faith. And as they die, so does our faith. It didn't work for Israel. It will not work for you. It was never intended to work for us. That's why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 would say, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men that you would not grow weary and lose heart. It's all about Jesus. May we fix our eyes on Jesus. Because why? People may fail you. People may disappoint you. People will die. But Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never fail you nor disappoint you. And as we learn from the lesson of Israel, it's a dangerous thing to place your faith in the person The only person who is worthy of following wholeheartedly and completely and emulating is the one who gave his life for the sins of the world, and that's Jesus Christ. And may we never forget to keep our eyes on him.
1: Pastor Gary has been teaching through the book of Judges, sharing the incredible lengths God goes to in order to rescue His people and teach them about Himself. Sometimes God needs to use extreme circumstances to get our attention and turn us back to the path He knows is best for us. We pray you've been encouraged as you listen today and that God is working in your hearts even now. If you'd like to talk with someone about what following God means for you, Or if you have any questions, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 703-771-1500. That's 703-771-1500. This message today has been brought to you from Pastor Gary and Cornerstone Connection, a ministry of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. You are most welcome to come see us in person if you're in the area. We meet every Sunday and Wednesday as a group And we'd love to have you be part of our services. Head to cornerstoneconnection.cc to find out more about the church and find directions and service times. While you're at our website, be sure to check out our archive of previous messages and download our mobile app to take them with you on the go. Thanks for tuning in today. And be sure to join us again for another edition of Cornerstone Connection.